Hello, and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton, and with my old friend James Jackson, we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here, and perhaps where we are heading. And yes, it is often violent and generally quite bloody. And welcome back to our section on objects from history, 100 bloody objects. What object have you for us today, Jamie? Object number 15, a Caribbean macaw. Pirates, the lies and the legends. Avast! Get me a cracker or I'll dunk you from the yardarm, lazy sea dog. Generations have been attracted to the romantic idea of pirates and adventure on the high seas. Who isn't thrilled by dashing tales of Bartholomew Roberts and Captain Kidd, or horrified by the brutal Edward Teach with his black beard fizzling with interwoven slow matches, or fictional buccaneers from Long John Silver and Captain Hook to the modern-day anti-hero Captain Jack Sparrow? The natural law of order begins on land. Only when this is firmly established can anarchy, robbery and disorder be swept from the oceans. Pirates need three things for them to succeed. A place to lurk, a market for their stolen goods and lawless times on land. Whether it's the Roman ships of Consul Pompey or Queen Anne's Royal Navy, the tried method to defeat piracy is to have peace and order on the land whilst clobbering their base of operations and destroying their trade. Thus, the romantic image of the pirate is not borne out by the pitiful rogue he generally turns out to be, living a squalid life of small gains and surrendering at the first sign of the gallows. Jamie, let's go back to those ancient times and take a look at the myth and romance of the pirate. There's certainly been a lot of romance around. Uh, you know, after 1882 and Long John Silver and Treasure Island, you, know, you started getting the image of the pegged leg and the parrot on the shoulder and all of that. And so that has survived. And you, you then get layers of Disney on top of it. But actually, real piracy is far more death camp than Disney. It's far more squalid, as you said in your introduction. And you can see that all the way through history. Yes, there are some. Well, there are some nice myths that you can see why people have been encouraged to think of it as a romantic uh, occupation. What, what about Jack Sparrow starting in modern times and uh, and Disney? It's always been said that there's a bit of John Ward in there, and he was the Mediterranean pirate who ended up as a corsair. He led raids against Britain and other nations around the Mediterranean, actually. And he, he was a Sally Rover, and he ended up retiring to Tunis. And this was basically the 16th century in which he operated. But by 1612, he had retired and was teaching gunnery and navigation to other pirates. So he actually retired, which is most unlike pirates. They tend to... Uh, so he created the Dartmouth for pirates. Yes, and there was an Irish cannon maker being employed later on by the 
Moroccan sultans. So there were a lot of Westerners there, and we'll get on to the Corsairs later. But So John Ward was certainly there, apparently, and what Disney was thinking about. But there's a lot of Black Bart, Bartholomew Roberts, who was an 18th century pirate, in what he did, or Jack Rackham, who's the debonair one, who was also known as Calico Jack. So all those sort of pirate legends. I mean, when we were young, we had the Ladybird books, and there was a Ladybird book on pirates, and all those names came to the fore. And a lot of what we know uh, sort of came through those names, was romanticised, was put into novels. There are a huge number of novels around based on pirates and the romance of the sea. And you you look at the first newspaper in America, which was the Boston Newsletter, and that was established in 1704. But its great scoop was the death of Edward Teach, the death of Blackbeard in 1718. That's what really made the splash across the headlines of that paper. The Boston Newsletter. Maynard and Teach themselves begun the fight with their swords, Maynard making a thrust the point of his sword against Teach's cartridge box and bent it to the hilt. Teach broke the guard of it and wounded Maynard's finger but did not disable him, whereupon he jumped back and threw away his sword and fired his pistol which wounded Teach. DeMelt struck in between them with his sword and cut Teach's face pretty much. In the interim, both companies engaged in Maynard's sloop. Later, during the battle, while Teach was loading his pistol, he finally died from blood loss. Maynard then cut off his head and hung it from his bow. Despite the best efforts of the pirates, including a desperate plan to blow up the adventure, Teach was killed and the battle ended. Teach was reportedly shot five times and stabbed more than 20 times before he died and was decapitated. Uh, Even some of the terminology we use nowadays apparently comes from the executions just as much comes from nautical terms of the Nelsonian period you know we have pirate terms as well the idea of something being a whopper something being large apparently comes from execution dock in London in Wapping when they put the hanged bodies of people like uh, Captain Kidd in a cage And the tide came in three times before it was let out of the cage, but the body would become black and bloated and start rotting and smelling. But it would become a whopper. And so that apparently, it might be an urban myth, but it's a good one, that that's where the term whopper comes from. Oh, no, that means my whopper and fries with the Coke. I'm never (laughs) going to look at it in the same way again. (laughs) But, Um, but, But as we know, in reality... So many of these pirates were total psychopaths. There seems to be a bit of a a grading between the ones that were romantic, perhaps like Bartholomew Roberts, and the real horror stories like Blackbeard. So let's hear a little bit about the truly awful pirates and what they got up to. Well, you've got people like Edward Lowe, who came from sort of low life in Britain and went to Boston, stole a ship, shot at a captain, uh, hit a crewman in the, in the neck. But he was known as a total maniac among his own crew. Uh, he specialised in dropping captives from the rigging to see how many times it would take before they died. 
and I should think there was a lot of betting on how long. And so that was his speciality. He once burned a cook to death. He once took a captain from a captured ship who had dropped gold coins over the side and was so aggrieved by this action, so so enraged, enraged that he cut the man's lips off, cooked the lips and had the man eat them before he then tortured him to death. So this was pretty standard fare for pirates. They were not pleasant people. In fact, this guy, Edward Lowe, is believed to have killed 53 captives with his own cutlass uh, from a ship he had captured. And in the end, his, his men mutinied against him and stuck him on an island, marooned him on an island when he asked them to torture uh, two trawler crews to death. Uh, th- this was what he did for sport. So he was not a pleasant man. Yeah, and then you sort of have on the other side of of the of the coin or the other end of of the the line of horrors someone like Captain Cormac, who was found by Sir William Monson uh, when he was looking for pirates up in Scotland, and then actually ended up in Ireland in Broadhaven. He discovered this chap, who was the sort of the head of all the pirates there, um, and his captains were the lovers of his daughters, and they actually had agents situated with this guy from the markets in London and Galway. So this was a, a whole business, as I said at the beginning, you know, the pirates, they needed someone to, somewhere to hang out, and they also needed uh, not very strong laws on land, and most importantly, they needed a market. They'd actually sent these agents to live with him so that they could do their deals. And uh, anyway, he was eventually uh, shown, the, I think the expression was put under the gallows, which basically meant he was shown the gallows and and the option was to either keep being a pirate or to give it up. And so he was forced to give up his activities and turn King's evidence. So many of them went back to it, though, having been privateers or having sought a pardon. The sort of psychopathy continued. I mean, Francis Spriggs, for example, who was the quartermaster of Edward Lowe, he ran off with a man of war that was captured because pirates tended to burn the ships they had captured unless they had use for them because it was very difficult finding a crew you know, to get the numbers involved. You know, they they had their own band of 'er ne'er-do-wells, but that was it, and trying to man a large ship was very tough. But but Well, and they couldn't, I suppose, sell it as a prize like you would if you captured it in the Navy. Yeah, it would be very tough. But but Spriggs, what he specialised in was, apart from making captives uh, eat and drink hot wax, was he did this thing called the sweats, where he made uh, captured crews dance around with a fiddle being played while they were being stabbed by his own pirates. And if they didn't dance hard enough, they were stabbed harder. Once that had finished, the captive crews thought, oh, we, 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 we've escaped that. But they were put back on the ship and burnt alive when the ship was set alight. So that was another unpleasant moment. It's said that Spriggs ended up being marooned on the same island as Edward Lowe, but no one really knows. God help both of them. <laughs> The last man standing, I imagine. Yeah, indeed. Then there were a couple of French pirates who were hideous as well. It was Francis Launay, and he was known as the Bane of Spain. And he was believed to, in fact, it's recorded that he cut open the the chest of a Spanish soldier he had captured and ate his heart raw. So 
that he was an unpleasant piece of work. In fact, he used to put ropes around people's heads and tighten it until their eyes popped out. Another one was called Daniel Montbars, and he was known as the exterminator, Montbars the exterminator. And what he used to do was pull out the lower intestine, nail it to a post and make the people dance while being while beating them over the head with a burning branch. As they sort of unravelled. Yes, it's doing the twist, basically. Mm. Um, yeah. So you've got all these murderers and cutthroats congregating, and a lot of them were escaping from the Navy. I mean, Black Bart, uh, Bartholomew Roberts, was actually on a slaver. He was working on a slaver ship when he was captured by pirates um, off Ghana, and he became their captain in the end. So uh, a lot of them had, had pretty racy or uh, rackety backgrounds before they ended up in piracy. Quite often, piracy took a sort of a leap forward after major conflicts like the War of Spanish Succession or after Waterloo, when there was a great release of men who'd been under arms. Um, suddenly, they were just sort of let go, and um, they had no income. So they, you know, they, all they knew was how to exist on a boat. So they took to being pirates. Just like a rise in mercenary activity after conflicts. I mean, you get trained men, and that's what they do. And a lot of them are penniless after the conflicts, so they, they go and find a new occupation. Clearly, piracy has always been a thing, probably all around the world, not just in the European sphere. But uh, for us, in the ancient world, we'll concentrate on the European area. And so it goes back really to several thousand years BC. It has been around an awful long time. Uh, you mentioned your, in your introduction that the need for markets, slave markets, for example, the need for hiding places. I, I would add also set trading routes. I mean, if you take the Mediterranean, most trade was done along the coast. You know, people didn't like heading out across the ocean. Navigation was in its infancy. You could get storms. If you get set trading routes, for example, between the Nile Delta and Cyprus or along the coast of North Africa, pirates know where the ships are going to be, where they can hit them. And if you have uh, Zbex with a low seaboard that can't be spotted from a long distance, if you have manoeuvrable vessels, then you, you can end up going from being a fisherman to being a pirate very easily and back again you know it was it was basically mugging someone in the park it was an easy thing to do and so it developed and you go back to the 14th century bc and you have loads of carvings about the egyptian pharaohs trying to stop uh, piracy around the Nile Delta, you know, coming into the Nile, raiding outposts. So you've got that problem. You've got Pharaoh Akhenaten writing to the King of Cyprus, complaining about pirate groups in the area. So there was always this problem, always this attempt to try and build up local defences. I think probably the difference between the, you know, navigating along the coast and the unvarying thing about pirates is those three items of market, a place to lurk and lawless times on land is that in, in terms of early navigation, they could only go along the coast. But as navigation improved, pirates could venture further and, uh, you know, they weren't so restricted and nor were the traders. 
Oh, in the end, by the time you get to the height of the Corsairs in the 16th, 17th century, you have them ranging far and wide. I mean, they go from the coast of Morocco all the way to Iceland and back. That's a 6,000-mile round trip. So they really did range far. But again, they had the market. There was a demand for white European Christian slaves, and the Corsairs fed that market. You know, by the time you get to ancient Greece, you have a huge piracy problem. I mean, in Homeric literature, the pirates are mentioned all over the place, and not always in a bad way. You know, people are fairly ambivalent about them. You know, historians, ancient Greek historians, are fairly ambivalent about the scourge of piracy, partly because of the nation state. You know, everyone had their own agenda. Everyone had their own uh, reasons either to trade or to commit acts of piracy. So you actually only had loyalty to your city-state even, and everyone else was, it was game on. You could just rob anyone else. Oh, completely. I mean, Rhodes, Corinth, Athens, they were, they were all very dependent on sea trade to survive and all very dependent on slaves. So, again, you, you had these city-states using pirates to their own ends. And later on, you saw quite a lot of those city-states absorbing pirates into their auxiliary naval services to actually do their bidding. Yeah, although quite often, eventually, the pirates, although they might be employed by the governments or the nations, become a problem in their own right, and then somebody has to step up and deal with them. Well, you look at ancient Rome. I mean, you look what... Pompey the Great had to do. He ended up after uh, pirate raids on Ostia and places like that, sending in his troops, killing thousands, and actually resettling a whole load of pirates. And it was definitely a carrot and stick, or rather a carrot and uh, crucifixion and destruction. No, I don't think he actually crucified them. He did kill them, but he didn't crucify no, no, them, no, which no. was a distinction made against, say, Spartacus and his men. Yes, they weren't slaves, they, yeah. they, but they were extremely irritating. And given that Julius Caesar had been taken captive by pirates, you can see that this was an endemic problem. And the Sicilians, to start with, they had been useful in getting slaves for the Roman Empire, but then they became a problem. And he... Um, had a great many troops and ships given to him by the Senate to do to to make this operation a success, and he was extremely well organised in the way that he achieved it. He divided up the Mediterranean into a number of zones. He cleared each zone, or had his his um, lieutenants clear them for him, and he pushed the whole pirate population from the west of the Mediterranean through to the east until there was one area he didn't have sort of cordoned off oh. in the east of the Mediterranean and that's where the final battles were Oh, you fought. mean the Levant? In the Levant, yes. Yeah, yeah. There was an area there and, and uh, he then piled in and if they didn't surrender, they were taken out. I mean, if you look at where the pirates operated and why they operated, these were all seafaring people. I mean, you look at the Phoenicians, you know, they were basically sea raiders to start with, you know, and then they spread, they settled in places like Carthage. But everyone around knew how to sail, knew how to navigate, was good with understanding the winds and all of that. And they were fishermen, or they basically harvested mollusks for their dye, or they collected salt. 
everything was orientated towards the sea rather than towards agriculture. So piracy was really just a little thing on the side, was a little earner on the side and a natural exploitation of the skills they already had. Yeah, and getting around the Mediterranean, I mean, the way you transported people and things was by sea, wasn't it? By land, it was hopeless, really. Including rats carrying bubonic plague. Indeed. <laughs> Straight out of the Nile Delta. So, so that is really why piracy was embedded in the, in the consciousness and the lifestyle of people around places like the Mediterranean from a very early days. So would you say, just bump it on a little bit, that the Vikings were pirates? I would say they were raiders, but because they settled, they were more like the Phoenicians. You know, they, they, they took over an area, they settled. They actually did end up farming and they did end up running nations or nation-states uh, or principalities. So I, I would say that they they probably started as pirates. I mean, they did run slave markets in Dublin, so they definitely had that sort of genetic start, if you like. Yes, but I suppose they were leaving a part of the world which was very, which had very poor agriculture, and when they arrived in the land of plenty, they, um, they preferred to stay. Yes, and they did have a rich culture. I mean, it's amazing that so many of those Vikings ended up as Varangian guards, for example, down in Constantinople. I mean, they did travel far and wide. So I think they were more than just pirates. They, they, they had a culture, whereas pirates on the whole, it was a far more disparate, more, far more spread out and eclectic group of people. But it's interesting the difference between you know the idea of a, of a sort of scallywag in his ship going around causing trouble, and this kind of piracy in the ancient world. I mean, for example, Alexander the Great had huge problems with pirates. Yes, he he was very worried that his uh, raids, his his invasion of Persia would end up being delayed by piracy. It was a big problem. I mean, it, it was a serious, serious problem in the same way that piracy is actually on the rise today. So, you, again, you've mentioned this lawlessness. If you have nation-states at each other's throats, they don't have time to deal with the endemic problem of piracy. They're, they're too busy either using the pirates to their own ends or desperately trying to conserve their naval fleets to attack their real enemies, which is a rival nation-state. So you mentioned that um, sometimes these are individuals looking out for themselves, but quite often nation-states, governments, use pirates for their own ends. So that takes us on to privateers. Pirates with papers, as they're sometimes called. The letters of mark. Yes, and they are a low-cost option for governments. If your navy is absorbed in other duties, or if you don't even have a navy, or if you only put a navy together in a time of crisis just like the ancient Greeks when they were attacked by the Persians and they put together a galley fleet. You know, if you don't have these this sort of standing navy, then actually it's quite useful to use pirates to upset your neighbours, to undermine them. And that went on you know, for, for years. And the most famous privateers, as we know, are really the English privateers, from the 16th century. Queen Elizabeth. Yes, she loved using the pirates. I mean, people like Drake, you know, sometimes they were pirates, sometimes they were privateers, and they were landowners too. 
they they could fa- fall foul of the authorities if they put a a foot out of line. You know, sometimes the political wind could change, and they were in trouble. I mean, Drake used to hide offshore when he returned from a voyage or a privateer mission to see if he had fallen out of favour with Queen Elizabeth. Um, you get someone like Sir Walter Raleigh, who was imprisoned for years in the Tower of London, uh, stitched up by none other than Robert Cecil. And he basically pleaded with King James I to allow him to go on a mission to find El Dorado. He was allowed to do that. Uh, he fell ill. His men, in the meantime, went and attacked Spanish positions. King James thought this would provoke war with Spain. So what does he do? He bows to Spanish pressure and has Sir Walter Raleigh beheaded. So, yes, the political wind can change and privateers are caught out. But it's worth remembering that when Pocahontas was brought back to England, what did she come back to England on? A ship called the Treasurer, and that was a privateer vessel. So there were many privateers around. You know, from the Elizabethan era, it was Hawkins, Frobisher, uh, you know, all of them, Grenville, Drake, and they became very wealthy men from their piracy. And often there was no difference between piracy and quasi-government work. Yes, these privateers, um, they were sort of under contract. That was the way to make and keep your fortune, but you had to be pretty wily. You did. I mean, Captain Kidd, of course, did some privateering work as well. A lot of them did do privateering work, and this was later on in the 18th century. But he fell foul of a change of government. He was sent, actually, to capture pirates on this what was essentially a galleass. It had oars, but it was a sailing vessel. And it was called the Galley Adventurer. And he couldn't find any pirates, so he turned to piracy. And in the end, he fell foul of the authorities and he was hanged. We talked about them before in our podcast on white slavery. But the Corsairs, were they buccaneers, pirates? They were both pirates and privateers. You know, we mentioned in the White Slavery the, the, the Sultan of Morocco, Moulay Ishmael, and they were sponsored by him. They were protected by him. They operated out of Sally. There were other corsairs operating Algiers. As we've said, they fed the slave markets, both for the Ottomans and of North Africa, of Tunis, Algiers, and throughout Morocco. So they didn't go after treasure as such. They just wanted people. They wanted people because that was white gold, that was white treasure, and they were much sought after. And they raided all over the place, the Iberian Peninsula, round the Med. We talked about them raiding Iceland. I mean, in 1627, Murad Flemish, who was a Dutch uh, privateer who had ended up as a corsair, he led uh, a mission to Iceland and took 400 people. So they went everywhere. And they were backed by the state. And you can tell they were backed by these states and by these rulers because it was only in the 19th century, after the Battle of Waterloo, after Britain had conquered and and defeated Napoleon, that we turned our attention to dealing with the corsairs and sent um, vessels to Algiers and laid waste to Algiers. And that really put an end to the corsairs, to the Barbary pirates. But you can see all the way through history the Barbary pirates being used. Look at the siege of Malta. The Ottomans sent their army to, uh, to invade Malta, um, to wipe out the Knights of St. John, 
who should join them but Dragut, the famous Barbary pirate, the ageing Barbary pirate. So it was a quasi-government-backed system. But it's interesting that rather like today, um, it turns out that the most valuable thing to smuggle and steal, um, it's not drugs or gold or weapons, it's actually human souls. Quite often it is. We'll get on to myths and legends later, but people talk about pirate gold. But it was very rarely gold that they were they were searching for. You know what they were really wanted was the loot that was carried by cargo ships, whether it was slaves or whether it was uh, hides of animals, or whether it was lumber or whether it was rum. You know those were the sorts of things they were looking for, things they could trade. I suppose. What I meant in a way is that when you when you steal something of property, um, you can sell it in a market and you get your money and that's it. But with slavery, you can take your slaves and actually you can continue to get useful service from them because once you've got them somewhere, you can put them to work. Yes, whether the slaves and privateers actually owned any of the land themselves um, is unlikely. I mean, given the, the, the sort of autocracy in which they operated, the, the, the sort of sultans that they served, it was quite hard. But certainly um, the, the privateers, the, the, the Western privateers like Drake and stuff, they, they all became gentrified. They all made a lot of money. Whereas the Sally Rovers, for example, the Corsairs, tended, I mean, some of them became rich and settled down, but they tended to be sea folk. That's what drove them. We mentioned them at the beginning, but there have been famous pirates, seemingly in the 18th century, quite a lot of them. Well, the 18th century was the high point. The early 18th century was really the high point or the high watermark of piracy. And there are names that really stand out and images that stand out. And, of course, Edward Teach, Blackbeard, is completely up there. And everything about him sort of speaks of piracy, the piracy that we know, the, the cliché of pirates that we know. You know, you, you mentioned the lit tapers, the slow matches in his beard and under his hat, the, the, the pistols hanging on a bandolier. And he was for It was a sort of image thing, wasn't it? it? It is an image thing, and he reveled in it. And as we mentioned, you know, the fact that his death was splashed across the headlines around the world, certainly in Boston and elsewhere and in England, uh, speaks volumes about how he had captured the imagination. We all know about Queen Anne's Revenge, the, the, the former French ship Concorde that he captured, and converted into a 40-gun pirate ship with 300 crew. But those sort of ships were terribly difficult to man, terribly difficult to train the crews. It only lasted a year or two, that ship, with him in charge, before he sought a pardon like so many of them. The heat was on the pirates. And so by 1718, he got bored again of the quiet life of sitting in North Carolina, so he took to sea again. But this time... It was in a sloop with seven guns. So they were much smaller vessels, so the, the ones that we have in our imagination. And yes, and, and that period, just thinking about it, that's the time in Europe when Marlborough's having all his uh, success um, chasing the French around and defeating them at Blenheim and Oudenard and 
Ramillies and so on. And it's really this date of, of 1718, it's towards the end of that whole time, uh, when there's a chaotic post-war period, but quite quickly the Royal Navy is, is sort of in charge and starting to sort the problem out. Yes, and the French had used quite a lot of the pirates to harass the, the Brits, basically, and take British shipping in the same way that pirates and privateers were taking on the French. But, you know, the French were using their islands as bases in which to harbour pirates. So it was, as it's always been, a sort of state tool. But by the time that Teach Blackbeard was tracked down, you had Lieutenant Robert Maynard, who had two small sloops, the Ranger and the Jane, and he managed to corner Edward Teach. And Teach thought, well, I've got seven cannons, I can take you on, you have none. So he sent broadsides into the Jane and into the Ranger, was convinced he had cleared the decks of all enemy crew, uh, of British naval crew. So he boarded with his party. He had already exchanged words at close range, saying that he was going to give no quarter. So he boarded, convinced that this was a prize, that he had seen off the opposition. And Maynard ascended from below decks with 12 men. And there was a short, sharp, close-quarter battle with pistols, muskets and cutlasses. Teach was shot through the chest and was killed, was hacked to pieces. So Maynard won the day. He was never really given the sort of credit and the accolades that I think he thought he deserved. But that was really the end of a key pirate and sent a message that pirates were really being hunted now. Well, I very much enjoyed Tintin and his stories about Red Rackham's treasure. So what about Jack Rackham? Is he the man? Calico Jack. Yes, he cut a real dash. He wasn't a particularly successful pirate, but he did capture smaller vessels and ranged around for a few years. He ended up being hunted down by a pirate hunter. Pirates often turned, like the Wild West, they became bounty hunters and privateers who were on the tails of other pirates. So Rackham was hunted down, he was captured eventually um, off the Bahamas and the governor of the Bahamas sentenced him to death. Rackham had got bored of going straight, just like Teach. Uh, you know, they got bored of being on land. They, get, they got bored of living this life of... Uh, and working for the authorities. And working for the authorities. Yeah. So th they just turned their hand, turned their attention to piracy again. So Rackham ran off with another pirate's wife uh, Anne Bonny, and was captured and was eventually hanged. And there's a story that Anne Bonny visited him in his cell and said, if you had fought like a man, you wouldn't be about to be hanged like a dog. Ooh, vicious. It was pretty vicious. Anne Bonny apparently got out of being hanged herself or spending years in prison by falling pregnant. But... No one really knows what happened to this Irish girl later on. No one really knows what happened to Mary Reed, though it said she died from fever. And so many of these pirates had very short, unpleasant lives. And if they weren't killed in action or marooned or set adrift in boats 
by their crew, they ended up just dying from fever. I mean, anything could happen from them. So life was nasty, brutish and short on the whole. Yeah, and in fact, um, Robinson Crusoe, the story by Defoe, is really based on a privateer called Alexander Selkirk, who was marooned on an island 500 miles west of Chile and spent four years living there and was eventually rescued by another privateer called William Dampier. And that became the basis for the story of his having to survive on this island. Apparently, by the time they found him, he was very wiry and he was able to catch goats very easily. And most of Dampier's men were, were, were exhausted and not in very good shape. So it was actually Selkirk who, who got them back up to speed and was, was put on strength on the crew. Um, but he had this amazing uh, story of having to live on an island which is now called Robinson Crusoe Island. It's been renamed from Mas Altiera Island. And uh, he became a, a bit of a... A hero. A literary legend. But Black Bart had started on a slave ship and, and because of his navigation skills was voted in as captain by the crew of that pirate ship that captured him. So there was a, a sort of code among pirates on what would happen and Black Bart, Bartholomew Rob, Roberts, really codified pirate behaviour. So he came up with all these ideas that you kept your pistol clean, that you didn't have your candles on below deck after eight, and if you wanted to drink, you'd go topside. Uh, you, you know, you wouldn't end up just drinking down below. He came up with the idea that if you swindled a man, you would be marooned on an island. If you allowed women on board, whoever smuggled them on board would be killed. That was Black Bart who came up with that idea. And it's often said that he, he was one of the earliest advocates of using the Jolly Roger, of having the skull and crossbones. But, but did they have an element of sort of democratic agreement as to who was in charge? They did. There tended to be a voting system. So it, it, it stopped everyone killing everyone else. And if you have those sort of cutthroats like Edward Lowe, who was a maniac and eventually abandoned by his crew. You, you, you're, if that is the way you run a ship, you are going to end up being killed yourself, having your throat cut yourself. So there tended to be a democratic system in place, a voting system in place. It yeah, was I suppose it's of, not like deserting from the Navy, which would have severe consequences. I mean, if you desert your pirate mates, you just go and work for someone else. Precisely. It was a freelance business. If you take someone like Captain Kidd, you know, uh, arch privateer and pirate, you know, he's someone who turned from one group to another, who worked for the government, then didn't work for the government. And he is actually one of the few pirates who did bury treasure. He buried treasure on Gardner's Island, near Long Island. And that treasure has never been found. I think he thought that that was a bargaining chip when he was taken by the authorities, but it wasn't, and his allies, his high-level political allies, didn't come to his aid. As we know, hierarchs tend to run for cover if there's any uh, political fallout, and that's what happened to Captain Kidd. In a number of our podcasts, we've talked about the British being having pirate blood in their system, and that this has stood us well in certain uh, rather urgent times, including the Second World War. An example of that would be Operation Chariot. 
March 28th, 1942. And it, it's a classic example of state-sponsored piracy, if you like. I mean, they're the incredibly brave men who went. But I think the commandos saw themselves not only as elite soldiers who hadn't been properly tested by that stage, but it was a great example of so many of the tactics, the naval tactics that have been learned in previous centuries and raiding by pirates and by privateers like Drake. You, you saw it come together you know, the synthesis of this in 1942. And it was the first attempt by the British on the Atlantic Wall, on the coast of Europe. Hitler thought he was supreme, but this attack, although it was high cost, 611 sailors and commandos went on the raid, 169 were killed, 200 were captured, and only a third made it back. But what was achieved was actually quite spectacular because what happened was 17 motor launches went in accompanying, and they were wooden, flimsy vehicles, using deception, as usual, typical pirates, with the Campbelltown. That was a ex-US Navy destroyer, the Buchanan. They cut the funnels off to make it look like a German ship. They were sending German more signals to the shore. They used lamps to signal... Everything they did, they even flew from the Campbelltown, uh, a German ensign. Everything they did was to try and delay the shore artillery from attacking them. There was a decoy raid, a deception raid by Bomber Command. In fact, what it did, it was so half-hearted, actually, that it simply put the Germans on alert for attack. They used every means possible to try and delay the moment when they had attacked, and they rammed the Campbelltown into the famous Normandy docks, these dry dock that could take an 80,000-ton ship because the whole idea was to stop the Tirpitz, the last remaining significant German battleship, from being able to base itself there. There were U-boat pens as well, but they weren't touched in the raid. There was one point, actually, where a motor launch took on a German destroyer as it made its way back home. It came off worst, of course, but again, it was a classic attempt of a little ship taking on a bigger enemy. There was one moment where one of the motor launches let a smoke decoy off at the stern and the German artillery started attacking that smoke de decoy. And it's so like Drake, it's so like Cochrane, putting lanterns in barrels and distracting the enemy, um, setting them off on a fa false course. And so that, for me is a pirate raid. And footnote, although the Bomber Command perhaps didn't uh, do them any great help on the day, they did end up sinking the Tirpitz with a Grand Slam bomb, well, several. They did, and they did manage to damage several German battle cruisers with sea mines, so they, they did their bit. But on that occasion, combined operations was in its infancy. No one really knew how to use it. People didn't trust it, just as people didn't know whether they could trust pirates or privateers back in the centuries before. And they couldn't. And they couldn't. But these were incredibly brave men who sacrificed their lives and did it willingly, going on that raid, on that small unit raid against the might of Germany. And there were 5,000 armed Germans in Saint-Nazaire and around Saint-Nazaire. So they knew it was going to be a suicidal mission. And had, the, had, they, had their codes cracked? 
Oh, yes, they'd cracked the enigma by that stage. So no, they, I meant the other way around. Had the Germans, were the Germans, had they broken the... Because I know they'd broken early on in the war some of the naval codes, hadn't they? They didn't know about this they, this they raid, but they, they started to suspect where, that, that, that things weren't quite right. But, but the fact that they managed to get so far into the Loire estuary, get so close before they were challenged... But it was it was so difficult with so few numbers to really making an impact to make make a substantial landing. And not only did bomber command not give a lot of aircraft, but you can see why because they had other targets. They were they were trying to conserve resources for the major bombing raids on on Germany. But the navy didn't want to give uh, any destroyers either. So that's why the raid went in, and these wooden motor launches. I mean, it was it was staggeringly brave, but staggeringly poorly equipped uh, for 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 the type of mission that was required. But this raid and the Dieppe raid, which was also a very high cost of life of the commandos, um, allowed the Allies to work out an awful lot of. Anyway, supposedly an awful lot of ideas about how to actually invade Europe when it came to D-Day and Normandy. Completely, and it and it basically gave a huge impetus to creating proper landing craft and working out the sort of support that was needed. But simply in terms of giving a boost to French morale, saying the Brits are still fighting, the Tommies are still fighting, that British morale is high. You know, it gave a boost to the French resistance that was pretty nascent at that stage or almost dormant at that stage. And it gave a boost to British morale that we could achieve something. And, and one thing they did achieve, when the Campbelltown blew up, the time delay on the fuses was such that the, the, the ship was inundated with German sightseers, the senior um, naval and army um, commanders and officers and 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 several hundred were killed i mean some of the estimates put it as high as four or five hundred and that was a big blow to the germans at that stage so it achieved a hell of a lot that's what eight to ten tons of explosives can do when it's packed inside the hull of a vessel and it blew out the uh, caissons the outer caissons of the dry dock did a huge amount of damage and those commandos had been into the pump houses into the winding rooms who put plastic explosive all over the place and it really stopped that dock being used for the rest of the war yeah five victoria crosses awarded this all leads us to today you'd think that uh, there would be no piracy in the modern world but in fact there's been quite a resurgence there certainly has and given that there is so much maritime trade you have container ships the crews on board those container ships are small the seaboard a lot of ships is low so you can gain access to it with ladder scaling ladders they're very vulnerable particularly when they're sailing through the indian ocean and the far reaches of the world so from the caribbean to the coast of somalia you are always going to get piracy and that that business is worth 13 to 16 17 billion dollars a year to pirates so it's 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 a huge business whether it's organized piracy or simply a cottage industry there are a lot of people doing it 
and people make a lot of money from it. I mean, in 1995, the high Mako was carrying $2 million worth of tobacco, cigarettes, and something that looked a bit like a Chinese Coast Guard cutter uh, attacked it, uh, took the merchandise and vanished and headed for the south coast of China. So you're probably getting state sponsorship of piracy going on. Do you um, think that's the CCP and their heroic smoking effort? It probably is. But, but you know, there's so many corrupt officials in any nation like that, in any rigid nation like that, that people are going to have a go. And if you have a lot of Coast Guard cutters and naval ships available, why not put them to use doing a bit of freelancing? Yeah, especially if you're not paid that much. Well, exactly. You take the Seaborne Spirit, the cruise liner incident in 2005 in the Indian Ocean, when two skiffs full of pirates started circling. Uh, they were armed with rocket-propelled grenades, assault rifles. And this is the problem with modern piracy. They have modern communications. They have GPS. They have tracker systems. They have extremely powerful weapons on board. And so they can do a lot of damage to isolated vessels in remote locations. And with the Seaborne Spirit, they circle the boat, and actually two of the security guards managed to use acoustic cannons and water cannons to keep them at bay. And the, But that was uh, a rare incident where you could actually keep the pirates away from the vessel. Why don't the ships have um, more armaments, the, the merchant ships? Are they not allowed to carry weapons? It's very difficult to arm every ship. And the, the thing is, you then, get an, you then get an arms race going on. Uh, what they have done is that they have different systems, like convoy systems going, going through the Gulf, uh, whether it's to keep Somali pirates at bay or to keep the Iranians at bay, for example. But you can't arm yourself against every eventuality. Uh, what calibre do you end up using? I mean, you know, whether you have small arms or not, you're, you don't have any sort of match for an Ehrlichan 20 mil cannon, for example, uh, or rocket-propelled grenades. It's very difficult. Uh, because then the pirates will start getting their hands on anti-tank weapons, for example, and can cause enormous damage. And if it's a cruise liner you're talking about anyway, any sort of firefight could well hurt civilians. And that's something that none of the owners of these cruise ships actually wants to have on their hands. Yeah, so they, they'll just hand over all the goods to keep, it, keep the passengers safe. Just like the Somali pirate situation where it was always much better until they introduced a convoy system and had naval ships from around the world guarding. Uh, you know, it was much easier to just give in. It goes back to the 4th century BC when Alexander the Great uh, basically introduced the world's first concerted effort for cooperation among different nation-states to try and fight piracy. And so this problem has been going on for millennia and it's not going to stop anytime soon. And it emphasises that one of the criteria is that if you have a lawless situation on land, the pirates can thrive. And the law of the sea doesn't really cover situations where countries don't have strong naval forces, don't have strong coast guards, don't have an international reach. 
I mean, you might be able to send a drone out, a long-range drone, but you're not always going to have vessels in the area. If, if we can't cover the Gulf, for example, which is why, how on earth are you going to cover the Pacific and Indian Oceans? There are too many islands, too many locations from which pirates can operate. And this kind of piracy doesn't just take place at sea. It can happen on lakes. Well, look at Falcon Lake on the US-Mexican border. There, the Mexican drug cartels are fighting each other in what can only be called small-scale skirmishes and naval engagements. So, again, it's pirates fighting amongst each other. But all these things are really responses to a socio-economic and political situation. You know, where you get collapse at home, where you get drugs, where you get, you know, we talked about slavery before, now it's drugs and other sorts of contraband. So wherever you get criminal gangs operating, wherever you get political unrest, you are going to get piracy. And you, you after 2010, you started getting all this upheaval in Venezuela, Bolivia, countries like that. So you got an uptick, a, a surge, a spike in Caribbean piracy, for example, and people getting attacked on their yachts, people being hacked to pieces. And it's a violent business. It's a violent game. That pretty much wraps it up. And in some ways, not much has changed from ancient times to today. There are still individuals who will take to the seas if there's no law on land and if there's somewhere they can hide out or lurk and if they can find some way of selling what they've got, what they've taken. But we do like to give you a PS at the end of our podcast. And I think we should go back, Jamie, to the legends. What is it about the Jolly Roger? People have different ideas about the Jolly Roger and where it came from. Some say that it came from the French, the Petit Rouge, the, the red flag that was run up when you weren't going to show any mercy, show any quarter to your enemy. Uh, Blackbeard, of course, in his final battle, simply shouted that he wasn't going to give any quarter. But but the idea of the skull has been around for a long time. The Corsairs always had skulls on their flags, for example, along with a hand holding a scimitar. So it has a long history. Uh, Old Roger was a term for the devil. And if you look at Blackbeard's uh, flag, his colours, it was essentially uh, death, uh, and, and that figure of death of the skeleton is is medieval, pre-medieval. So Blackbeard's flag was, was a skeleton holding an hourglass in one hand and a spear uh, pointing towards a heart with three drops of blood coming out from the other. But it gave a pretty clear message that no quarter would be given and he was someone to be feared. So pirates always went for, for, for the concept of death, always went for bones and a skull. So the Jolly Roger could be a skull and crossbones, but it could also be various other. What about treasure, though? This idea of gold is really incorrect. I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's a little off the mark. Yes, gold was captured. We, we spoke in the podcast of Edward Lowe um, cutting the lips off a captain for dropping 11,000 gold coins in a bag overboard or in a chest overboard so that Lowe couldn't get his hands on it. Uh, kid buried treasure. But on the whole, 
you know, treasure was really cloth, hide, even macaws. And people talk about parrots being, being on the shoulder of pirates, but most of these birds were actually uh, sold for their plumage uh, or for, as novelty items to markets elsewhere in Boston, New York and, and back in Europe. So probably one of the reasons that these birds became extinct in a lot of the islands of the Caribbean. So treasure as a whole, it wasn't gold. It was, it was anything they could sell. And that was usually the, the ships that were, were full of trading commodities and slaves as well, of course. So the ships themselves were generally burnt. And Jamie, what about that other key item, the eye patch? Well, there's a practical role for the eye patch in that if you cover one eye, it means that one of your eyes will be functioning uh, when you go below decks to clear the decks below. So it wasn't because you had lost an eye and a skirmish all for effect. It, was, it really did have a practical purpose. I remember that actually even in our army training, whenever we were on night manoeuvres and we had to sort of look through uh, goggles with you know, nighttime vision aids, uh, you always had to keep one eye closed or if a flare was sent up, you had to keep one eye closed so that you didn't blow your night vision. How did your family dig up the silver at night? <laughs> The thing is, after, we, after we've been talking about eye patches, the next thing we're going to talk about is walking the plank, which I'm actually going to give a practical video on this on our website of Jamie walking the plank I've prepared for him. <laughs> I wouldn't know, yes. I'd just say, where You'd are we? You'd have no clue. Just where this way, please. We, where are we going? You can't torture blind people. <laughs> but the, But... Walking the plank is part of that legend and part of sort of children's folklore. You know, I remember it in children's books. There was always someone being forced to walk the plank. But in fact, that was rarely used. I mean, pirates on the whole either marooned people or they tortured them and killed them. They, they you know, we've talked about the, 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 the well-known pirates who did that to so many of their victims. But if they wanted to uh, damage people... They would either come up with their novel means, like drinking, eating hot wax and all of that, and dropping them from the I just think rigging. a bit of flaying alive went on, didn't it? Yes, and certainly keel-hauling went on. Uh, and, and a lot of those things they would actually b sort of bring from naval tradition, uh, which, which went on for centuries. And keel-hauling was always part of it. Putting someone adrift in a boat without any provisions. That was also a favourite. In fact, uh, Ed Lowe, Edward Lowe, did that with a crew of a whaler. He had tortured the captain to death and then he put the crew into, into a boat and set them off with no provisions at all. But they actually made it to the Nantucket and survived. But it was certainly... A bit like a, Captain Blythe. Indeed. But he was given provisions and he probably had a lot of eggplants with him as well. <laughs> <laughs> to keep him keep him happy on his journey. Now we're going to look at another. What are they? What are they called? Um, are they plantain? No, no, no. They're no, they're, they're um, those those big shiny things. I don't like eating them. No, no, no. Uh, aubergine. Oh right, that's it. Aubergine. And he probably didn't like eating them either. I'm sure he he was. He, I'm sure he was a roast beef man. But I think they were put on board, weren't they, to feed slaves? They were. They were there. Well, to they were going to try planting them somewhere. Yeah. They? Yes. Yes. The Caribbean. Mr. Christian probably ended up with them. <laughs> But anyway, so that is walking the plank. It's 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 again. It's it's a nice pirate myth, but it it doesn't really bear scrutiny.
Aha. Well, I must go and feed the parrot. So it goes. Is that a euphemism? <laughs> feed the parrot. I think it's an entirely innocent expression. And don't trample all over my outro. Sorry. So it goes. Remember, please, feedback to me at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James the Pirate Jackson. Please subscribe to Bloody Violent History on the app you use. It really helps others to hear about us if you leave us a review. Thank you and good luck. Thanks, Tom. Bye. What are you looking at, you scurvy rat?